In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who whatever are present and fill us all things, treasure of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O good one. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. All right. Um, so last week we talked a little bit about the Orthodox worldview, what it means to have an Orthodox worldview, um, how we, we should be looking at the world um, with an Orthodox worldview, and why it's important to do so. Also talking about how we need to study our age in order to protect ourselves from certain philosophies, ideologies, that not only are just pervasive in society, but also have crept their way into the church in some instances, right? So today we're going to talk, today and next week we're going to talk a little bit, uh, we're going to get a little bit into history. And the reason why it's important is because it's important to, um, just like when we read through the Old Testament, you know, it gives us, it gives us some perspective of what happens spiritually in a society when they drift away from God when they come back to God, you know, all these kinds of things. You know, we, we celebrate the prophet Samuel um, tomorrow. We read in the Synexarian tonight uh, about him and his life and calling people back to repentance, the people of God back to repentance. We saw what happened to them with the Philistines when they left God and what happened to them, how they were blessed when they came back into repentance under, um, under Samuel, the, the last prophet and judge. So it's good today to also look into our history and know where we are and how we got to where we are and in order not only just to just be people of knowledge, but also people that can um, defend ourselves against certain um, ideologies and other things that have crept into our, our, our lives. You know, we... We're all, like we talked about last week, we all start from this place in this society, and we have to be conscious of that and, and face it um, in real terms, right? We're not Orthodox Christians that lived in the 19th century or the 18th century in Russia or in Greece or anything like that. We're people who are modern people who have grown up in a society, and we kind of see you know, where this society is that we've uh, grown up in. And also, it's just good to being aware of these kinds of things to teach others and to teach our grandchildren and our children, you know, because in public school these days, they're taught very little history, you know, before the Second World War is like ancient history. Um, and so we have a lack of knowledge of history. And as the kind of famous saying goes, history repeats itself, right? And um, it's good to be knowledgeable of, of history and where we are. So, Today we're going to talk about the, basically from the time around the schism up until uh, the Enlightenment, right before uh, the French Revolution. And before we get into it, I should say, you know, preface it with saying it's always dangerous a little bit to go through history with a broad brush, right? And we're kind of forced to do that in some respects right now. There's whole you know, college courses dedicated to the three different uh, movements that we'll be talking to tonight. To tonight. We're doing it all in one night rather than a full 16-week course. Um, but the reason why we're doing it is not 
just to know historical fact, but also to become aware of the philosophical undercurrents throughout these, these time periods and how it relates to how we think and we view the world today, or at least have been taught to think and think about and view the world today. So without further ado, the root of modern history is the schism of 1054. This is where we can trace all of humanity back to the thought processes of today, all are tra traced back to the schism of 1054 and the ideologies and, and everything that crept in the church, the Western church right before and prior to the schism that caused the schism. So it produces, the schism produces catastrophic consequences in the West um, in forms of philosophical undercurrents, in forms of theological um, currents, and um, obviously in forms of spiritual spirituality, genuine spirituality. This is when the West divorces itself from the Church of Christ. And so it um, begins to flounder on its own, trying to find something that we'll get into later. It's grasping to find a new Christianity because it has divorced itself from true Christianity and true spirituality. Um, most of the undercurrents that led to the schism in 1054 really start to bubble up in the 13th century, which we'll get into a little bit. And this, um, this Dominican, Ives Congar, who is a historian, kind of an ecumenist historian, he says that a Christian in the 4th century would have le felt less bewildered by the forms of piety in the 11th century than would his counterpart of the 11th century in forms of the 12th century. So there's a huge drastic change that happens from the 11th to the 12th century in the West. And most of that is because of uh, scholasticism, which we'll get into. So we already see that after the schism, there becomes this, this great divide between the churches. And prior to the schism, there was always friction um, amongst diff uh, various churches, but especially after the schism and this transition from the 11th to the 12th century and the way that men thought acted um, in accordance with, uh, to the church and also to the world from the 11th to the 12th really uh, puts a great rift between the East and the West. And we see that after this, it's almost irreparable, um, the damage that is caused. So what led to the schism and after the schism is an unbalanced rationalism. Unbalanced what? Rationalism. 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 So a, a, um, a gravitational pull towards rationalism, right? And, uh, and rationalism unchecked if you will. So this great philosopher, Ivan Kirievsky, if anybody you know, really wants to get into how the Orthodox think about modern uh, philosophy and all this kind of stuff, this is the man to go to. He was a Russian that left Russia and traveled through Germany and other parts of the world and he listened to lectures from um, Schelling, from Hegel, and became very disillusioned with the modern philosophies that drive our current society. 
and basically, because of its materialism and its humanism, and basically had a reaction to it when he returned to Russia, and he started a genuine spiritual life, a very deep spiritual life, um, an Optina monastery and, and other such holy places, and wrote a lot of works about the West from the time of the schism until now, uh, modern philosophy, all that kind of stuff through the eyes of the spirituality of the church, the true spirituality of the church. So he says that it seems that the distinguishing feature of the Roman mind is precisely the conviction that outward rationalism outweighs the inward essence of things. And this becomes very prominent as we start to look through history uh, going forward from this point. After Rome separated from the Orthodox Church, this particular trait of uh, outward rationalism is precise, is, became divisive and dominant in the quality of the teachings of Roman theologians. And Kirievsky says again, it is quite clear to us why Western theologians with all their logical scrupulousness could not see the unity of the church in any other way but through a unity of the episcopate. So he talks about here about how the, it wasn't so much a theological unity that was very important, but a, an episcopal unity, something that had to be an outward uh, sign of unity in the, in the person of the, of the Roman Pope and not a theological um, unity. A fascination and reliance on human reason takes shape, and it leads to the scholastic period. Um, which kind of has been coined in modern academia when we look at, uh, at history. So what Kirievsky is getting at, what Father Seraphim is getting at, is that Roman Catholicism departs from Orthodoxy because of newly introduced dogmas that are based on conclusions of Western logic and reason, not on the inward, genuine spiritual life, which has always been a source of wisdom from the fathers. So from this, Father Seraphim says, from this develops scholastic philosophy within the framework of faith, then a reformation in faith, and finally philosophy outside of the faith, which are the steps that we'll look at as we look through history. First, we see philosophy within framework of the faith, and then in the reformation of the faith, the changing of the faith, and then outward uh, philosophy working outside of the faith, which starts to work against the faith, which we'll get into at, at the end. But basically, the rational mind becomes its own, it becomes autonomous, and it works outside of um, mystical tradition. It works outside of um, the canons and the teachings of the fathers. It becomes its own way of... Um, discovering God and all these other kinds of things. So at first, you know, the Roman church thinks that this is uh, a great way to discover God. And then later it starts to turn against um, the church as it's set free, you know, in the world, if you will. So Kirievsky says here also, there are some quotes that are just too big for me to write into your notes, so forgive me. But they'll be on the recording, so... He says, such an endless, wearying play of concepts for the duration of 700 years. He talks about after the schism, in the scholasticism. This useless kaleidoscope of abstract categories which ceaselessly whirled before the mental gaze inevitably had to produce a general blindness towards those living convictions which lie above the sphere of reason and logic. 
So is what he's saying here is that you can't reach the things above the sphere of logic if you're only working on logic in itself. And we'll see when we look a little bit, um, we talk a little bit about uh, Aquinas and the Summa Theologica, that this is ex precisely what he's doing. He's using the rational mind to talk about theology in a way that is completely foreign to any uh, father before him. So Kirovsky, he continues, For a man ascends, ascends to convictions not by the path of syllogisms, but on the contrary, when he strives to found his convictions upon syllogistic deductions, he only distorts their truth if he does not annihilate them altogether. So the truth is distorted, if not annihilated, when we're just looking at it through the kaleidoscope of reason. And you see this, you know, uh, in philosophers later on, basically just the endless, like I think what he says here, this imagery of using a kaleidoscope, just endless kaleidoscope of trying to uh, uh, deduce and dissect um, different I ideas in order to try to come up with a conclusion, which many times just ends up, and we'll see in modern, you know, in postmodernism, ends up in the complete, you know, annihilation of, of the concept in itself and the dismantling of any kind of tradition before it. So the movement towards scholasticism produces three shifts in the West that Father Seraphim talks about. And um, these three shifts are first from an ex exemplarist, which means looking at everything through the eyes of religion and God having a, a work in everything, outlook to a naturalistic one. So from the mystical life, in other words, to the naturalistic life, from symbol to dialect, and from tradition to synthesis, uh, tradition and synthesis to research and study. And um, this Congor uh, Ives, this uh, Dominican, he says here, he says, there was first a transition from a predominantly essential and exemplarist outlook to a naturalistic one, an interest in, in existence. This is a transition form, or from a universe of exemplary casuality in which the expressions of thought or of act receive their truth from the transcendent model which material things emanate, imitate, to a universe of efficient casuality in which the mind seeks for the truth in things and in their empirical foundations. So it's taking the transcendent and obliterating it, basically putting it secondary to the naturalistic. Secondly, there was a transition from symbol to dialect, or as one might say, with a greater precision, from synthetic perception to an inclination for analysis and questions. Here we have the beginning of scholasticism. The difference between the two worlds is the difference between the attitude of synthetic perception and quest of the relation of the parts to the whole and an analytical attitude. So everything becomes processed through an analytical mind. So this is really the pinnacle of this scholastic age is really seen in Aquinas's work because what Aquinas does is he takes he takes this um, syllogistic reasoning and he processes theological questions through it. So if you've ever read this work, basically what he does is 
ask a lot of ask one question and then plays devil's ad, advocate to that question and goes through kind of a logical questioning to get to the theological truth or the theological point. And this is very different from any of any other um, theological work that you read before this time from the fathers. Um, very, very different. It's it's processing and playing with theological ideas with with only the framework of um, the rational mind. So sometimes he actually comes to very silly conclusions because he's only using his logical mind in order to um, deduce his answer. You know, boiled down from a big question, um, challenging it with by playing devil's advocate with it, and then looking at it and gazing at it until finally he deduces it to um, this theological truth, right? And sometimes they're not very truthful at all. Um, they're just they're just kind of a theolo- they're, they're logical. They become logical playthings and ideas. And modern philosophy um, all evolves off, off of this kind of reasoning, right? Where where revelation, mystical revelation, and tradition become takes starts to take a backseat during this time of scholasticism. And the rational mind becomes the kind of autonomous vehicle in order to reach even theological truths in the church, in the Western church at this time. So the the conclusion of it all in this scholastic scholastic period is that uh, living faith is placed secondary to a system of logic. Right? Everything has to be looked at through a through a logical gaze. He's, he was a Dominican? Um, Aquinas. Aquinas was a Jesuit. This Jesuit. It's interesting that the Dominican is quoting his Dominican. Um, yeah. A couple of <laughs> One is, um, it's not that we reject reason. It's just right. it's this enormous overemphasis. Yes. Gone, 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 run away. Um, but I thought you might find it interesting to know that uh, today, in the recent years, uh, Jesuit seminarians are called scholastics. Yeah. Jesuit seminarians are called scholastics. And, and I, I don't know if it's universal or even in this country, but in my experience, most um, major seminaries mm-hmm. for Catholic priesthood, after they've done their, their, their uh, college work, they're sent away to get a PhD in philosophy. Right. And uh, right. so it's very common. It's not yeah. Universal. So it's really still called up. Yeah. So you partly s- because they can't, they can't read the Aquinas without a... Uh, you know, pretty good understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it gets passed down in the Roman Church until today. You know, this emphasis on uh, philosophy and other humanistic ideals uh, that that theology theology is filtered through. And um, Subdeacon brought up a good point. You know that that I should have talked about before going into this all the way is that. You know, it's not like we reject any kind of reason or logic in the Orthodox Church. Our greatest saints, you know, the, the three great hierarchs are all were, most, were the most educated men at the time. So we don't um, reject the, the kind of forming of the mind and acquiring of, of worldly knowledge and philosophy even. But there beca- it becomes a problem when we don't filter it through the heart and the genuine spiritual life. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about the kind of waning of a mystical tradition in the church and and of divine revelation. Um, And what's taking its place is this rationalistic, naturalistic, humanistic mind that is taking taking its place. 
And so God becomes, um, you know, encountered not by living divine revelation as we see in the past, but now by this rationalistic, logical mind, which the fathers would, would say is very faulty. It's a very faulty way of um, diving into and exploring theology. So then this um, also leads into the search for a new kind of Christianity. And what we see during this period is um, a difference in the church with attitudes that are, that are structured around, around a, a romantic outlook um, on the lives of the saints and what a saint is becomes different during this time than what was experienced in the Orthodox Church in the past, and also um, the way in which the church, uh, the Western Church, um, approaches politics is different during this time. So Romanticism, uh, there's kind of two good nuggets during this time. Uh, that the first is the Golden Legend, which is basically a compilation of the lives of the saints during this, during this period. And during this period, um, a lot of stuff gets added into the lives of the saints um, that the, church, the Western church would react against later um, and overreact against later, which is why uh, some of the saints that we venerate today, like the Forty Martyrs of Sebast and other um, saints like that, have been kind of excluded from their canon of saints. But... Um, during this time, a lot of romantic emphasis is put into the uh, hagiography um, in this book, The Golden Legend. So it was basically like a synexarian like we have from Dmitry Rostov um, today that talk about you know, all the different lives of the saints. But um, in this particular one, The Golden Legend, it is uh, very um, embellished with a lot of romantic ideals. The other nugget is, is that is exemplary toward the, towards this romanticism is the life of St. Francis of Assisi, which becomes very different. This, this life of this saint is very different from what we find in the Orthodox East, especially before this time. You know, St. Francis wants to do different things, and, he, and his life is uh, characterized by almost this uh, romantic uh, asceticism, you know, and especially when we get to his life, uh, we're talking about the, the stigmata, which is something that Orthodox saints have never experienced. It's everything that happens in the West, and many times it happens because they ask for it to happen, which is a big no-no in Orthodox monasticism, to ask for a miracle to happen or ask to experience something mystical is not something that Orthodox monks ever or should ever do. It always has disastrous consequences. The only time I know about the stigmata in the lives of the saints, the Orthodox saints, is in the life of, a, a, of in Optina, where one of the monks was persecuted by a demon, and he was, he was just like the saints of old were beaten like demons, or beaten by demons, forgive me, beaten by demons, um, the life of this monk in Optina, um, he was crucified by a demon and he had signs just like any of the other saints who were beaten by demons had physical wounds or physical signs of being beaten um, like saint anthony the great 
this monk wa- had the, the signs of being crucified by demons who drove nail, nails through his hands. And so this is the only time that I know of um, in Orthodox hagiography where somebody has experienced something like this, and it is because of demonic assault, and it's not because they experienced this kind of romantic experience that led to this bleeding in, of, of their hands and their side and everything like that. So St. Francis asks for this to happen to him, which is, if we look at it in Orthodox terms, this is concept of prelist in the Orthodox Church. Basically, prelist is asking for a miracle to happen to you that you are not spiritually ready for, right? So you're, it's, it's easily, you're easily deceived because Satan can come as an angel of light, you know? So if you're not, if you're asking for all these miracles to happen to you or that you would perform some kind of miracle, but you don't have humility in a genuine uh, spiritual life, you know, then it becomes very disastrous and dangerous because we're easily led astray by such things, especially in our time when we put so much stock in signs and wonders, right? So we see that happening in, in these lives of the saints now is that this sainthood becomes t- something totally different and foreign to what is being experienced in the East and what we experienced in the past. And so... You know, we have to wonder where is all this quote-unquote spirituality coming from? Which world is it coming from? You know, the, the church had divorced itself from orthodoxy, from genuine spirituality, and now it's starting to lose its genuine spirituality and experience something uh, much different, much different. So in politics... This is just one instance, but it's a good instance. Pope Boniface VIII, right? Where he, he takes Constantine's throne, he sits on it, crowns himself, and says, I am Caesar, I am emperor. So it becomes, uh, whether he's venerated or not, doesn't really matter. What, what we're looking at here is, that is, is he venerated or not in the West, you know, it doesn't really matter. What we're looking at here is a, um, now a deep-seated idea that has, that has taken root in the Western mind, that a man can be both a religious leader and a universal leader at the same time. And so we have to question, you know, what is this paving the way for? Obviously, the word starts with A, <laughs> Antichrist, right? This is the spirituality of the Antichrist, to be both a religious leader and a world leader. And so this, this idea starts to take root, you know, in the, in the Western uh, mind. And Father Seraphim, a good quote that he says here, he says, I think I have it on the next slide. Let's see. Yeah. It is not by means of persecution, as it was in the beginning, but by means of taking Christianity and changing it so that it will no longer be Christian. And this is what we call the unfolding of the mystery of iniquity. He's talking about Paul's writings here in preparation for the Antichrist. And we talked about this last week, too. It's not necessarily um, an alien spirit that will come in and start butchering everybody, but it becomes an undetected spirit because it 
slowly worms its way in, disguising itself as something Christian and persuading the faithful into a different type of Christianity. So, because uh, it forms a totally different, totally different Christianity, right? That is foreign to the true spiritual life uh, that we experience in, in the East, you know, at least that our saints experience in the East, I should say. We still have to work to experience this genuine spirituality. Don't even Muslims have that dual, like sometimes an ayatollah is like head of the government. Yeah. And that's their religious leader, but he's the head of the government. Yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, and, and we, you, you see it in other cultures. It's not like this is the first time that it ever happened. Um, but the kind of this framework that is leading up to it becomes very striking, you know, that we are divorcing ourselves in this divine revelation and now embracing, or at least someone is proclaiming himself to be both a religious leader and a world power, you know. So the Renaissance. Yeah. So, like we talked about last time, you know, Father Seraphim was very big on telling Orthodox Christians of modern days to take the best that the secular world can give us in order to inspire us towards the transcendent. And a lot of the things he talks about was classical art, classical music, and things like that, right? We have to take the best of the best that secular, the secular world gives us in order to help us to see an, the otherworldly um, and help us to plant our, our, ourselves firmly you know, in the world in order to come face-to-face -face with it. So in getting in and also backing up to scholasticism, there still is good things that happen during these times that we can be inspired by. But we have to be aware of their undercurrents in order to be safe from them, right? So when we get to the Renaissance, I studied art history as my undergraduate, and I absolutely love most of the Renaissance artists. And I take a lot of inspiration from them in many ways. But there are philo philosophical um, undercurrents during this period which are very antithetical to an orthodox worldview. So before I go to the next slide, let's see. Okay, so reason during this period turns against religion. So as we said before, since reason is autonomous, it develops its own principles alienated from holy tradition and then from religion altogether. And the world becomes awakened. Can we talk about the dark ages? And they came into this enlightenment, this understanding. Humanity finally awakens, and it starts to build and progress. You know, if we go to a secular university and we learn history, this is what we're learning. Basically, that the world was in this darkness and kind of this fog up until a certain point of the Renaissance or right before it. And the world starts to spark and ignite and become awakened. Humanity becomes alive, and we start this road towards um, this great progress, right? So the world becomes awakened. It turns from romantic uh, sainthood and monasticism 
and, ha- and begins to have a negative attitude towards it. The West turns from Christianity back to the reason of pagan Greece and Rome. And Erasmus, um, a hum- basically called the Prince of Humanism of the, of the 16th century, he says, when I read certain passages of these great men, sung by the philosophers, the Greek pagan philosophers, I can hardly refrain from saying, Saint Socrates, pray for me. Right? <laughs> Not that this man really ever prayed to saints. Uh, it's pretty apparent in his life and his writings. But you start to see now that the concept of sainthood becomes replaced by these great philosophers of old. And so there becomes also this obsession of oneself discovering true man and what it means to be human, an overemphasis on the human body. I may put this man's face up too soon, but... So a few themes that develop to shape modern thought that we still experience today, the repercussions of them. The first is fame. The exaltation of oneself, fanatical lives, biographies, both not in philosophers, but artists of the time, popes of the time, and the itch for human glory and reputation. And obviously this snowballs and becomes completely absurd in the 20th century and in our own times. Before, this was something that was not really heard of. Among artists, for instance, in the East, it's hard, it hardly ever that you find um, an icon or frescoes that are signed by the artist. This becomes something new. A good story from uh, Michelangelo's life, Bonarotti, you know, the great artist. He had, he had sculpted the Pietà, you know, that, that is in, is it in St. Peter's Basilica? Yeah, St. Peter's Basilica. It's a magnificent piece. But he sculpted it, and there were some, you know, art purveyors walking through the basilica and came to stand in front of it and kind of, you know, um, I guess fashionable at the time to start discussing, you know, the, the art of it, you know, the beauty of it, you know, all these kinds of things about it. And they said that, and one of the men said that it was done by Raphael, and Michelangelo overheard it because he was working in the, in the uh, basilica at the time. And he became so infuriated. And this is typical of Michelangelo. He was somebody who kind of just like went off his rocker with rage um, from time to time. And so he broke into the, the basilica at nighttime and he, cro- and he carved across her sash. I am made by Michelangelo Bonarotti. So that everybody would know from that time forward that it was made by Michelangelo. Now, one of the beautiful things, and these are kind of like the gems that we can pick up, you know, that I'm talking about for inspiration, is after this time, Michelangelo becomes so grieved by what he did that he never signs another artwork after this time. So there is this concept of fame. We want our you know, sculpture to, to be prominent above the, the sculptures of others, you know, and, um, and the lives of artists that are written down during this time become very fantastic. 
and every be, ev everything becomes based on the intuition of the individual. And something new is created, every time something new is created, right? It's all through the intu intuition of the individual and this emphasis uh, uh, in the individual. And this is Descartes, you know, who said, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. Right? So it all becomes based on the individual. Later, our Saint Sophroni would say, I love, therefore I am, right? Because this is based on some transcendent concept of love, but here it is all based on the individual. I think, therefore I am. Therefore, everything is filtered through myself and my reason and logic, right? How I deduce theology, how I deduce um, the world around me, it exists because I think it, therefore I am, right? So it also comes into play at this time. You know, we think of, especially if we're taught about Renaissance, the Renaissance in school, and we don't look much further into it. We think of this age, you know, when you look at uh, Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, you know, he's very famous for all his sketches of in inventions and anatomy and other things like that. So we think of almost this time of, these, of, of men becoming enlightened, have these great minds that, can, that invent things, that figure out how the world works, um, and, and uh, give birth to science, right? And all these other kinds of things. But in reality, when you look through um, their lives and when you look deeper into this period, a lot of it has a lot to do with superstitions. This becomes an age that is completely obsessed with astrology and alchemy and witchcraft and sorcery. And it starts to turn its back on the church in order to discover the world, right? So it's a contrary. It's contrary to the spirit of the Holy Fathers. Completely contrary. This great um, historian of the, of, of the 19th century, Jacob Burkhart, he has this book called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. And even he, you know, he's an atheist, but he does some very good work on looking through the details of this time. And he says, and he makes this, you know, astute observation. He says, it was well known that Augustine and other fathers of the church combated astrology, but their old-fashioned notions were dismissed easily with contempt. Right? So this new age is dawning, right, where we don't need the things of the past and the fathers of the past. Now we have this new enlightenment, and we have to run with it and discover with it. But a lot of it is based on these superstitious ideas as well. And then superstition also invades Western Christendom. So we have popes like, popes like Julius II and Paul III. Julius II based his coronation on calcula calculated you know, on the day by astronomers. Paul III wouldn't hold um, meetings, consistories, if astrologers didn't predict the day and the time that they should meet. So even the things of the church start to be revolved around this, these superstitious and um, you know, magical ways about looking at the world. So new standards. In departing from orthodoxy the Holy, and the Holy Fathers, the lines of the church, what it dictates is good and evil, begins to be blurred, which is the most disastrous thing of it all.
So in this time, you also have the Protestant Reformation. And the, the inheritance, this is basically culminates in the inheritance of the individual over holy tradition. So you can see the philosophical current that, that leads up to this. You know? In modern education, you would be taught that the church suppressed everybody for so long, and now Martin Luther came along, gave new life to the world, and opened up everybody's eyes so everybody can be an individual, you know, and have free thought, and all these kinds of things. But you see the philosophical undercurrent that goes through all of this, you know, and, um, and how it spreads, and then the fruits that it brings. So Protestantism be- becomes the culmination of this, you know, that the individual now has authority over tradition. It's able to decipher theology with, with, with reason, every person. So now we have, you know, to today, thousands and thousands of different Protestant denominations everywhere because the individual is the source of, of reason and discernment about who is God, you know, not holy tradition, not divine revelation, and the tradition of the fathers, none of that. None of that. It all takes a back seat or is completely erased and wiped away. So, like, this is why um, St. Justin Popovich, he astutely said, you know, that pap- papism is the first Protestantism. Because after the schism, all of Roman Catholicism is based on the individual, but it's a person, one person. After the Reformation, now everything's based on the individual, but now it's everybody. Everybody's individualism counts. And just to talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on in the East at this time. What's going on in the East at this time is that you have um, the writings, the Philokalia are coming to basically an end during this time, the 15th century, Right? And all of these great mystics and, um, and writings that are being scattered and um, experienced through the East at this time. So you have a robust spiritual tradition and spiritual knowledge through divine revelation that is going on in the East at this time. And then you have it taking a backseat in the West at this time. So this is a really interesting section to talk about today. The rise of science and power over nature. Father Seraphim calls it the leaven of worldliness. The science of the time. It's the most significant change, he says. So we see, you know, in... In scholasticism and the Renaissance, it puts roadblocks in the way of this new, new age because in, in the Renaissance, men were always looking to ancient texts of the past for enlightenment. And the Reformation, it put too narrow of a... It had too narrow of an outlook on the world to give way for this... Scientific, this new scientific mind that would um, now be 
rampant in the West after this time. But after this stuff starts to fade, the birth of science comes. And man is set free from tradition. And we already saw it a little bit with the astrologers and the popes, right? The Holy Fathers take a back seat because we have this new way of thinking. And we're discovering the world for what it really is. And we have this new advancement. So the same thing starts to happen here and it, and it progresses. Scientific method replaces scholastic method. And it leads to a loss of truths that do not fit in a narrow framework. So whatever can be explained by science is heresy to the scientific mind. And uh, you, you only see it a little bit here during this period, but it becomes more pronounced and especially is seen today. Science really originated under the spirit of, you know, Faust, you know, the story from Faust, where he makes a deal with the devil. It's born on the experiments of Platonic alchemists, astrologers, and magicians. This is the history of the birth of, of modern science. What we would now, you know, talk about modern science today, it inherits all of these traits and values. And the aim is power over nature. Descartes, who we showed a picture of, he's one of these kind of prophets for this age to come. Because he talked about the world as a machine and that we have to take um, control of it. Nature is a machine and we have to take control of it. This man, by the way, used to have uh, great fantastic revelations of angels appearing to him. One of them is the angel of truth that told him that this new age of scientific reason would be the way in which mankind is supposed to progress. So all this superstition, alchemy, and magic is all working itself among these uh, great pillars of Western society and philosophy later. So Father Seraphim says, the religious nature of scientific faith can be seen today when the breakdown of scientific faith, uh, with, when the breakdown of scientific faith, which has been do dominant these last centuries, is leading to a new crisis in religion. Because now men come to the question, what can one believe even if even science, which is supposed to be the ultimate certainty, gives no certainty? And so new irrational philosophies are born, and the wish to believe in new gods. This scientific world outlook, which is now breaking down, is producing this restlessness which we sense in the air today. And a number of people who are inspired by this restlessness are coming into orthodoxy. In fact, that is the position in very much of our converts. And it's very important all the more, therefore, since we are trying to defend ourselves against false philosophies, to understand that if coming to orthodoxy we do not fully understand the orthodox worldview and enter into it, we will become the pawns of these new irrational philosophies which will take the place of scientific faith. The scientific texts of the Renaissance period are filled with Platonic and pseudo-Christian mysticism, 
and with the conviction that the mystery of the universe is now being discovered. So it's this conviction that now they're coming upon this new way in which to look at the universe. So modern science puts an intolerable weight upon men. That's what Father Seraphim um, started talking about in the 70s and 80s. Many people feel the rise of modern science has as its ultimate aim the bringing of mankind to total slavery. Slavery. Because its aim is, and it's, it's born from, the idea of controlling nature. This is its roots. These are the, the philosophers and the people that uh, modern science, the foundation of modern science, is laid on. So it inherits all of these ideas, whether it likes it or not, in some form or another. And Father Seraphim, after this quote, talks, talks about um, you know, this, this guy Skinner that was doing experiments about, um, you know, Father, it's kind of funny, Father Seraphim talks about the, uh, they're talking about putting a calculator in your pocket that, so that when you think something that is contrary to the spirit of the age, that you're zapped by this calculator, you know, which is kind of funny because if, he knew about you know, cell phones today and how they could hear everything that you uh, say and do and know where you are. I'm sure that he would have much more to say about this topic. But it's born in this, you know, and you can see it even in, in modern technology. Even if, you, like I said last week, if it's overt or covert or if the, if the uh, motive behind it is sinister or not, still the the undercurrent is still there for, uh, for, to control people. The undercurrent is still there. I mean, they know where you, if somebody could look and find, you know, where, where you are, what you're talking about, who you're with, but if they have a phone as well, you know, all these kinds of things. And um, like he said, like we talked to a father Sarah from last week, when we, when we start to sense this centralization of power over the individual, then we should start to be hesitant about you know certain things. But science is is all based; um, it's born under this uh, this guise of trying to control the universe. And the reason why is because you know men become men become God, right? In this period, because everything's based on the individual. So as a consequence, the world has to be um, processed by this new God and also has to be subjected to this new God. So then we get in the um, Copernican Revolution, which you know, has so, is so um, dramatic in the West and very undramatic in the East. You know, the... the the discovery that the, by, by mathematics that the earth revolves around the sun and not the opposite uh, takes drastic effects in, in the West. And somehow scientific thought becomes heresy, which is so foreign to a concept in the Orthodox Church that a scientist 
preaches heresy, right? And science becomes heresy now. Especially when things aren't incompatible with the faith. So for the Orthodox East, it, would, it is absolutely just strange that this man Copernicus and some of his followers afterwards would be, you know, suffered martyric deaths or, you know, um, subjected to various kinds of uh, persecution just because they figured out something by means of the logical mind of science. And this is what we mean, you know, that orthodoxy doesn't throw out all of the logical mind that, you know, we're, we're just supposed to be mystics high up in the sky. No, it has to be grounded also in a genuine spirituality. So when you lose spirituality, the genuine li spiritual life, and everything becomes pursued by, by means of logic, even within the theology of the church and even in, you know, labeling heretics, then everything becomes very worldly, you know. The way in which we look at the world becomes very worldly and less and less spiritual. So, worldview changes also during this time, though, at the loss of an inner man, right? The West is no longer, or at least in the popular sphere, no longer looking into the inner man and is very much obsessed with the outer world. It's divorced itself from the spiritual science of looking at within, so it has to be, it takes all of that energy and projects it on the natural world by means of reason and logic and now the scientific method. And so Giordano Bruno, who is one of the disciples of uh, Copernicus, he kind of finds himself wandering around Europe trying to fulfill himself and kind of creating this cold universe. But he also starts to philosophize that everything, God is matter. The planets have their own spirit. The stars have their own spirit. The trees have their own spirit. And so now we see like a full circle back to pagan ways of thinking. So then we come to a period in which, you know, we can see heliastic ideologies kind of weaving their way in through different uh, philosophy and ways in which the church in the West carried itself. This idea of heliasm basically means to build a paradise on earth. To build a paradise on earth. And as we said, you know, man is a new God, and therefore the world must become divine. So not only is it that we have to control the world, but now we have to turn it into our own paradise. This is probably the furthest extent of 
taking one's eyes off the kingdom of God and looking towards the earth. There's the painting of the Tower of uh, Babel. Man trying to build his own paradise, reach heaven on its own terms. And this ideology would fuel a lot of modern philosophy and a a lot of modern scientific thought as well, which we'll get into next week. So this is just uh, a little bit of the Enlightenment. I always put it in quotes. Because when we look into it, it's not so enlightening. Uh, It's enlightening in a humanistic sense, but not in a spiritual sense whatsoever. So enlightenment prior to the French Revolution. This is when deism becomes a new religion. And deism is basically the concept that God, you know, the stopwatch God. God started a watch, he steps back from it, and it works on its own. Sometimes he goes and he fixes it, you know, winds it back up again, tunes it, cleans it, and sets it back down and lets it go on its own, you know. Even some of the scientists of this time would talk now about how God doesn't even know the mathematics of how comets, you know, come past the earth and all these other kinds of things that they were discovering. You know, they're putting their, themselves, you know, as, they, as if they have this mind that's, that's above the divine. But this idea that, you know, God is still there, but he's just kind of uh, irrelevant to us. We need to figure out this world make our paradise in it and you know god's just kind of up there somewhere not really bothering with us so much and it's really the overt rejection of divine revelation and divine experience and these are some handsome men at the time that have disastrous philosophies that lead to our modern days Hume, Voltaire, and Diderot. What was the first one? Hume. Hume, basically, he rejects all miracles, you know, and he has, and he has uh, whole papers written on this subject of the rejection of miracles. These are all men that lived in the 18th century just to give you a timeline of like where we're at, just about the 18th century. So both Voltaire and Diderot were pretty hostile towards Christianity. Diderot said, The Christian religion is to my mind the most absurd, atrocious in its dogmas, the most unintelligible, the most metaphysical. So metaphysical becomes a bad word now, you know, during this time. 
the most intertwisted and obscure, and consequently the most subject to divisions, sects, schisms, and heresies, the most mischievous for for the public tranquility, the most dangerous to sovereigns by its hierarchical order, its persecutions, its discipline, the most flat, the most dreary, the most gothic. and the most gloomy in its ceremonies. This is very interesting where you can see the platform that uh, modern philosophy would spring off of. Mischievous for public tranquility. Dangerous to sovereigns. You know, all these things. But at the end, he says that it's deism that is the true new way for man. And deism should have temples and ceremonies. So it's not getting rid of belief altogether, but just the change. That temples and ceremonies should still be established. And Voltaire takes it further. As Voltaire says, every man of sense... Every good man ought to hold Christianity, the Christian sect, in horror. The great name of deist, which is not sufficiently revered, is the only name one ought to take. The only gospel one ought to read is the great book of nature, written by the hand of God and sealed with his seal. The only religion that ought to be professed is the religion of worshiping God and being a good man. It is impossible that this pure and eternal religion should produce evil as it, ha- at it, as it is that the Christian fanaticism should not produce it. So, we still hear it today, you know. Be a good man. As long as I'm good. As long as I'm good. God will take care of me later. And this is you know, the stopwatch God, that he just creates a watch, sets it down on his nightstand or whatever, and uh, is completely oblivious until he needs to tune it once in a while, clean it once in a while, that kind of a thing. God is completely, you know, ostracized from everyday life, actions, thoughts. And this is also the age and the birth of masonry. which we have this deistic uh, philosophy, you know, intertwined with ceremony, temple, and ritual. And also during this time, and and from these uh, philosophers, would later become the idea of progress. And it becomes very emphasized that we start to build now on the folly of the past, Right? And there's birth towards an evolutionary uh, looking at the world. Uh, the past is, has been lost because of its, you know, naivety. And now we have passed through this great enlightenment and renaissance. And now we take the world by its reins and we correct everything of the past and now move towards a new man. And that's what these three men are really all about. And others like them during this period is... You know, Christianity was all its horror, everything that it's caused us, you know, all these kinds of things 
should be rejected and thrown away. And maybe, maybe rightfully in some of their, their thoughts, because what they're in contact with is this Western Christendom, which has gone so far off the tracks, you know, and it doesn't present a mystical life or, or true uh, spirituality, but it presents more of a, a worldly outlook on life uh, and a rational, rationalistic one. But to these men, you know, even metaphysics now becomes something that is looked down upon. Just be a good man. Live in the natural world. Frame everything with your logic. But that's all against the Catholic Church, right? Yeah. That thinking. Yeah. And this is what, and this is what um, you know, when we talked about earlier, that you know, the last part of the stage that Father Seraphim says is now the rationalistic mind turns itself on religion. So first it starts in the church, then it starts to reform the church by changing, changing it, and then later by reformers, the, the, the Reformation. And now it's working outside of the church against it. Yes. In his day. Yes. And I read something. I read a play by him, Candide. Yes. Orders on the obscene. Yes, it but does. It's all against the Catholic Church. Yes. You see under, you know, read between the lines. Yeah. Yeah. And just to give you a concept also of what has happened in the East at this time, this is um, this is the 18th century. So this time you have great saints like St. Cosmos of Aetolia, who is asking his people, you know, he's, he's traveling all around Greece and asking his people to go back to the traditions of the fathers and to embrace the spirituality of the fathers, to go back in time and look at where the people had, had departed from true Orthodox life, why their life has become so dreary and deadening now is because we have lost this true spirituality. So it says, look back to the fathers, always this look back to the fathers, right? And applying their lives to our modern situation. And St. Nicodemus the Hagiorite is later in this period when he starts to compile all the Philokalia and the different writings of the fathers, when he starts to compile um, the, the manual for confession for a priest, when he starts to compile the Evergetinos, which is all of the desert sayings of the fathers, you know, and the canons in the rudder. He starts to compile all these things, and the life of the church is flowering during this time. And at least he's bringing these things back into the light during this time, compiling them and putting them forth. St. Paisis Filichkovsky, he basically takes the Philokolia to the Slavic world. And so there's this, there's this rebirth of uh, hesychism and internal prayer and the discovering of the inner man during this time. And all of this nonsense is going on in the West. And later, the, the, you know, in the 19th century, we have like the Optina elders, which um, Kirievsky would become a disciple of, and St. Seraphim of Sarov, St. Theophon the Recluse. You know, when I, we do these readings by St. Theophon very often, for the daily liturgies and stuff, you hear how he rails on on people who are you know 
obsessed with their natural mind. And he talks about new philosophies that are tearing people away from spirituality. To stay away from the, re- the West and its, its scientific reason. He talks about all this kinds of stuff in his writings. And next time you know, we read something like that, maybe your ears will like, prick up because he's writing about this stuff that's going on right after his lifetime. And he sees the consequences of all of it. You know? So all of these saints from this time period and right afterwards are seeing the effects of something spiritually disastrous and they're writing against it and telling their people um, to be weary of it, you know? Because the big thing that happens now is that, you know, we see the blurring, we already saw a blurring of the lines between good and evil. And now we're at such a point where we don't even know where the devil is anymore, right? There's no way to, there's no um, safeguard, there's no spiritual safeguard anymore. And now reason is just kind of out into the open, making its own philosophies and departing from spiritual life, right? And later, you know, we'll talk maybe about this a little bit next week, but later, then all different schools of thought start to divorce themselves from the church. We start to look at anthropology outside of the church. We start to look at psychology outside of the church. Everything becomes detached from itself. And now even in modern um, universities, you know, a, a psychologist might not talk to an anthropologist. And so you have even detachment from the detachments, right? And now we're not even treating man as a, as a universal whole, holistically. We're treating him as separate compartments, right? Because we're, we have these, spe- these special, you know, um, trained schools of thought now in certain areas, but neg- negligent of other areas, right? And, and, and that's not to say that all of these things, like I said, are bad. But when we start to divorce them from a Christian anthropology, when we start to divorce them from looking at the person as a as holistic spiritual and physical being and all these kinds of things, then the West just uh, ends up failing itself miserably on on fulfilling, fulfilling man, healing man, and giving, giving him life and breath, right? And so the fathers of the, of the, 19, of, of the 20th century, the, the 19th century, 19th century, they really start to um, warn their people against it. And, um, and we'll get into next week talking about revolution and what... And these ideas that spur now revolution, the overthrowing of a kind of, of a monarchy and the concept that we can live and we should live free from any kind of religious overrule, right? We don't need the church anymore to tell us how to run our lives, find fulfillment and figure out the world. We have it all. We can just be good people. And, um, and find out, you know, experience God naturalistically, and then later an outright rejection of even those things. Right? We, become, we become autonomous and live our lives individually, separated from the, the rest of everybody else. So that is just a, a very broad brush on something that, you know, you could talk three years about. <laughs> in a college course. 
So, are the, is there any questions at all? Uh, I just want to ask yeah. about Copernicus. So, didn't, so the Orthodox Church, I mean, not the Orthodox, but the Catholic Church rejected him, right? Yes. For centuries, was it? Yes. And then, and then how did they, then they brought him back into, like, the real, real world, I say, or whatever. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. So that wasn't really too long ago. No. Posthumously, you know, I, I am pretty sure posthumously he's, he's, you know, regarded. Do you know it was during his life that he was ever recognized? No, I don't think so. At least on a, on a major scale at all. I mean, he had disciples, for sure, but... The la- I forgot to my last slide of Faust and his deal. No, that was Descartes, Descartes, which is like the you know the foundation of of uh, philosophy today. I this am, man. Therefore, I think that's putting Descartes before the horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Descartes before the horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other questions at all? Yeah. Not a question as much as something that I've always wondered about being Eastern and going to school in Western Christian church. Yeah. Um, or going to school in the church. Um, they never spoke about monasteries. Uh huh. They, they all they would say that they had. I, I don't even recall them saying monks as much as they said priests. Uh-huh. And, uh, but this, I, I understand now why. And because I, I never remember as a child seeing any of these saints in a monastery. Yeah. Or, even in the Holy Land, I never saw them anywhere other than where they were born and raised. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's a good. Um, observation and it and it becomes da- disastrous for the Catholic Church later, you know. And it becomes even worse, you know, after Vatican II. We 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 lose a, an enormous amount of monastics in America, you know. And this this um, <clears throat> holistic relationship between the laity and monasteries is something that the Church has always maintained because. It gives it gives this you know breath of life, and in the beginning we had martyrs as witnesses for extreme faith that we should hold, and now we have monastics as that example of extreme faith that we should hold. Um, there are there are witness to us, <clears throat> and when that dissolves in the West, an emphasis is taken off monasteries and put into. Um, like universities and other things like that, this mystical life really, really is, is drained of all of its influence. And it becomes very um, obsolete in a lot of ways. And the, and the disastrous thing about this is that now there's no ascetical life. There's no ascetical life to teach the laity and even more of a problem is that there's no ascetical life to teach the priests who are celibate. So you don't have 
a monastic influence pro as prominent for a celibate priest to go to a monastery or to be connected with an abbot of a monastery, you know, that is keeping a holy tradition and a spiritual way of life. There's no, there's no guardrails anymore for him, you know, and, and that it just, it just snowballs and there's all these uh, after effects of it, you know, when you, when you read so much about uh, spiritual discernment in, in the fathers and the ability to very, fall very easily into deception and how one should guard oneself, how one should test the spirits, all these kinds of things become completely lost. And you have these, you know, quote-unquote saintly figures of modern times who, you know, are really just drenched in all of this, um, this romantic, you know, life and these fantastic miracles that become so prominent of a, of a quote-unquote saint, you know, in modern times which when we look at, when we read the life of somebody like Padre Pio, for instance, and the life of, you know, like Paisius the Athenite or St. Joseph the Hesychist or any of the modern saints of today, they become drastically, drastically different figures, you know, completely alien to each other, a totally, completely different spiritual life and outcome. And so we have to question, you know, what is going on here? And what is the spirit that is, being, that is being revealed here through these people? Yeah. It's interesting when you were discussing Francis of Assisi, because that was always, as a Catholic, myself, Roman Catholic, pre Vatican II, I, I graduated eighth grade uh -huh. at the end of the Vatican II, so uh -huh. next year was totally different, but I was gone. Yeah. And I looked at those saints, and, you know, uh, Francis of Assisi was one. Um, I think uh, Ignatius Loyola also uh -huh. stigma. Yeah. Uh, and there was, uh, I think this one uh, woman saying, I don't know if it was uh, Catherine or Claire, she had the, you know. Yeah. I looked at those as, as kids and, and the stories that they would tell us about, even the, even the modern ones like Maria Goretti in 19, early 1900s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these, it was impossible for us to be saints because how do you make that happen? And right. you were telling, when you are saying something about it, I thought, because they made it happen. And it yes. It happened to me. <laughs> you know, to anybody in the Orthodox side, which I've been in for right. years. But it was interesting how those the saints were so above, and the, and the clergy was a step above, and the popes, of course, the vicar of Christ on earth. Right. And, and, and uh, people argue, my I have read Count the Parliament, and they argue that, no, Peter's the rock, and all that stuff. Sure. I said, but Pope. The one pope that said no to the um, universal bishop, bishop of bishops, was St. Gregory the Great. Mm -hmm. And in Bonus the Eighth wrote his Unum Sanctum. You know, I was studying that it, all salvation comes through the Roman Pontiff. Yeah. So what you were saying kind of cleared up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gregory the Great said any pope doing that would be Antichrist. Right, any pope, right. Pride. Right. And here they did. I'm Caesar, yeah, yeah, and then, yeah. And then we go from there to our modern day, and then uh, I have a book from my uh, grandfather who's published in the 1880s. It's a really, uh, it's falling apart. Right after the Vatican I, and there's a chapter in there of the defense for that infallibility declaration. It's mm. amazing. The sac the, uh, 
the rational thought because of this, this, this has to be that way yeah. because of this and that. And what yeah. else did Christ say? Da, da, da. They bring yeah. it in from everywhere. Four. And yeah. we should have had that all yeah. along. It took 1,870 years to get to that point. Yeah. Yeah. So what about all the, you know, I, I could just, this is really good, Father. Thank you. Yeah. Because thank God. Thank God. Forward. Thank Father Seraphim. This is like, yeah. you know, so much of his work is all this this stuff and hundreds of pages just dedicated that I can't get into because it would take hours and hours obviously but I mean his his depth and looking at all of this kind of stuff and the and the and he's he's very famous for this I mean when you read orthodox religion the future and stuff like that he's very good at you know stringing philosophical undercurrents together through all for through different time periods and what he's doing here and we'll see it is that he starts to build up to where humanity not only like relies on itself and then turns against religion, now it's looking to set up its own paradise on earth, figure things out for itself. And then the destruction of humanity begins, right? And postmodernism takes, and, and all of humanity now becomes completely absurd. Everything becomes absurd. And so even the things that are left over, like the dwindling um, science of the times and all these kinds of things, you know, they apply themselves in the most absurd ways, you know. Um, so it's a, really, um, it's a really good work. And I think it's good for us just to know it, just to see where, we're, where we come from, where we come from. Because many, many of this is, you know, we're taught in school, a lot of this stuff, at least I was in my generation. But these are the, like the great, great heroes, you know, these guys. Boom. You know, exemplary men. And, uh, and we look at them through an orthodox lens. It doesn't seem to be so. It doesn't seem to be so. But... I like your expression that you mentioned early in the talk tonight, that something is not filtered through the heart. Yeah. You know, that it's... You're not thinking properly. Yeah. Well, if you remember what we talked about, you know, and when we, uh, we did it in a few different courses, but um, we talked about how human, the, how, how man was created and, and his contact was with God was filtered always through a pure heart. And that divine revelation that came to the pure heart is what, is what the mind drew from. But now we have a heart that's completely divorced and cut off from divine revelation and a mind now that's cut off from divine revelation and it's just seeking its own in a natural world, you know, unhindered now in many ways. Uh, and, we'll, and then we get to today, you know, we're not even hindered anymore by um, being ostracized for thinking or acting a certain way. That used to hold people back, you know, from, from certain you know, obscene acts. But now none of that, you know, completely, dis complete destruction. And Father Seraphim, you know, he will get into Nietzsche and he holds up Nietzsche as his prophet of the, of the modern times, not in a good way, but in a way that he does really foresee what's going to happen to mankind. And Father Seraphim says, whether we like it or not, we all have a little bit of Nietzsche inside of us because we're modern people. And so we need, in the, in the process of our own deification and our own cleansing of the heart, we have to be attuned to these things because when, they, when the thoughts of these philosophies begin to take hold of us and we, 
and we become uh, hypnotized by them, you know, they, they lead us astray. So we have to figure out, you know, where these things are embedded in us and how they dictate how we as Christians act and view the world. And we have to eradicate um, the silliness of, of a lot of this stuff that, that really leads us um, in, into total disaster. So let's, um, let's stand and end with prayer. <clears throat> in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it is truly me to bless thee, the Theotokos, ever blessed and all blameless, and mother of our God, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, who without corruption gave us birth to God the Word, and our truly Theotokos, thee do we magnify. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, O Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen. Amen.